This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Back in high school, I remember giving one of those nerve-wracking stand-up-in-front-of-the-class book reports, and in my case, it was about Milton's Paradise Lost, because even back in high school, I knew that long poems were the way to go, uh, and they were where I wanted to be. And I remember at one point, uh, I think it was only because I had been told by uh, my teacher that It can't just be a lecture. You have to pretend like you're asking people questions and uh, interacting with the rest of the class. I asked a question, and the person who gave the best answer happened to be a cheerleader. And uh, I doubt that uh, uh, this girl, woman by now, a middle-aged woman by now, has ever thought about John Milton since then. But... It struck me that uh, someone who has no interest in uh, reading Milton or of reading long poetry or of reading poetry at all, uh, there's no reason that people like that can't have something to say, something worthwhile to say about it. And that brings to mind something that uh, a Harold Bloom type, it may have been Bloom himself, who said something like, uh, this was a comment on why we seem to accept so much bad poetry in the world, and, and the comment was, you wouldn't accept a badly made chair or a badly made table from someone who clearly had no idea what they were doing and who was just saying, I'm following my emotions as I build this chair, and if I'm the only one who uses it, uh, or if my family is the only one who will buy this chair from me, then that's fine. Um, I've never really believed that. Um, I don't think that uh, as much of a discipline and as much uh, as writing poetry can sometimes Uh, especially formal poetry, I guess, can sometimes seem to be a matter of something as mechanical as following uh, uh, IKEA instructions for building a table, or even just a very good, uh, someone who's very good with their hands, just going to town and doing whatever they do and finding inspiration in it and coming out with uh, a piece of furniture that is miraculous. I still really don't think that that is the same thing as poetry. Uh, 
the uh, more snobby among us might really not want to admit this, uh, but for some people, uh, a bad rhyming poem, uh, some version of greeting card poetry, uh, is the only poetry they will ever experience, and it's the kind of poetry they like, and it may, may very well move them. It may honestly actually move them. Um, I remember, must be 15 years ago now, uh, when I was living in California with my wife, and uh, I went to work one day, and it turned out that one of my coworkers, uh, a girl in her early 20s, I think, uh, the talk of the day was that she had uh, quit uh, without notice, basically, and gone to live with, uh, gone back to live with her mother in New Orleans or something like that. And what she left on her Facebook page, would have been Facebook back then, it must have been MySpace back then, uh, was a quote from uh, Avril Lavigne, an Avril Lavigne song. And for a long time, this, uh, this story has really stayed with me. Um, for a long time, my response was, well, this is what's wrong with, with the world. This girl is running off and starting her life over again. She should be, quoting, she should be uh, quoting Tennyson, or at the very least, Allen Ginsberg, or um, uh, Galway Canal, I don't know, somebody like that. Whitman, even. Uh, but instead, it's Avril Lavigne. Um, and at the same time, uh, there's the uh, anecdote about Bruce Springsteen, who, after uh, September 11th, uh, someone uh, in New Jersey stops him on the street and says, uh, we need you, Bruce. We need your songs. Um, they didn't go up to the, uh, who, who would be the equivalent, I guess. They didn't go up to Robert Pinsky or uh, Philip Levine or, I um, can't even think of who the equivalent would be of a public poet, uh, and say, we need your poetry now to help us through this event. No, they went up to Bruce Springsteen. Um, this is a very long way of saying, I don't think that uh, creative artists of any kind really have any excuse uh, to be snobs um, or to think that what they're doing is really any better in the end than what, uh, what anybody else is doing. Um, of course there are exceptions to this, there, in, in, if we're talking about poetry. Uh, there are certainly reams and reams of uh, WordPress, uh, Blogspot blogs, just filled with terrible, terrible poetry that no one will ever read, and all of them have copyright symbols at the bottoms of the poems because uh, these poets do not want their work stolen from, as if anyone ever would. What I'm really getting at uh, is something that uh, T.S. Eliot said once, and, and the gist of it was that uh, uh, something to the effect of uh, when quote-unquote average or ordinary people are put into situations of uh, great intensity, whether of joy or of sadness or everything in between, uh, the natural mode of communication for 
the supposedly normal people is poetry. And I've always loved that, and, and I seem to have leapt beyond it recently into thinking that it's, it's not even poetry. The poetry in a moment like that doesn't really matter. It's something that is beyond poetry. It's something that is something that something that works, that speaks, but something that is at the same time very artless. Uh, I think this this idea makes a lot of creative people extremely uncomfortable because we spend so much time uh, creating something in our own heads of. Uh, crafting a song or a novel or a poem and suddenly someone else can come along and I guess what I'm talking about here is really uh, human beings ability to speak of their own lives extemporaneously almost to talk about themselves suddenly someone can come along and uh, it's not as if they're trained storytellers it's not as if they uh, are professional lecturers or teachers. It's not as if they've planned any of this, but they can suddenly come along and just give you a story, a human, eloquent, astounding story, and it just unspools out of them. It comes out of them naturally, and it works, and it's better uh, very often than a novel or a poem really ever could be. And so when I say something like, uh, that outside of T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, my favorite poem of the 20th century, is probably Allen Ginsberg's Kaddish. I mean that in the sense of it not being a poem. I mean it in the sense of it being something that has gone beyond the need to be uh, something that uh, smart people can carry around in their pockets, or that uh, the writer can feel proud of having created uh, there's something in Kaddish that is so pure, so uh, outside of the outside of the feeling of anything that has been consciously created. Um, it almost doesn't matter what it is. It is it is what poetry, at least the best poetry that I know of, is leaning towards, which is sort of a a, a clear window straight into humanity. No artifice, no frills none of it. Uh, what you see is uh, actual life organized in such a way um, that it would otherwise take a novelist, uh, you know, 500 pages or more to tell. And I think that for some reason this example always comes to me when I think about this, uh, is the example of uh, Holocaust memoirs. I guess you can use this example really with any memoirs, but it's striking to me that uh, the idea uh, that became current after the Holocaust happened, which was that uh, poetry as we thought of it is not possible anymore. And then there's the idea uh, uh, from Daniel Mendelssohn in his great book, uh, The Lost, A Search for Six of Six Million from about 10, 13 years ago. Um, it was an, an incredible book. Uh, uh, anyone should press stop on this podcast right now and just go and read that book if they can. Uh, 
but uh, his idea is there's there's no there's no need I mean until the survivors of all the survivors of the Holocaust have died there's even really no need to write fiction about it we need to get the people on tape um, or in many cases it, it is uh, sit them down with a ghostwriter and just let them talk or do what Steven Spielberg has done with the Shoah Foundation and just sit them down to talk uh, someone else who, who by the way was was given the same opportunity was Joseph Campbell I remember uh, reading that Bill Moyers interviewed Joseph Campbell in the early 80s um, and had such a good response to it that he wanted to do it again and somehow or other the 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 anecdote goes and this may have been uh, George Lucas who was telling him to do this um, was basically the idea of just before he dies we need to just sit him down in front of a microphone and let him talk uh, Campbell had done lectures um, and he had written books but for my mind and it could be because uh, because of course eventually um, Bill Moyers uh, sat down with Campbell and they produced The Power of Myth together. Um, it could be because I've watched The Power of Myth more, uh, I've watched it more than I've read Campbell's books. But, um, but it's even the case with his lectures. I don't know of uh, any other medium that he worked in other than these interviews with Bill Moyers where the stories he told, and he told the sto same stories over and over again. Uh, they were told the best when it was Bill Moyers, uh, the one prodding him. And it's funny to see in the introduction to the book version of The Power of Myth that Campbell was hesitant to let it become a book. And he only gave his permission when, uh, when he was uh, allowed to sort of go through the typescript that the book was going to be made from and sort of iron out the uh, the awkwardness that Campbell saw in his speaking voice as opposed to his writing voice. And for me, the speaking, the the uh, what he actually says on video is almost always better than the cleaned up version that he uh, wanted to use in print. Um, so there's something to artlessness. There is something to uh, any documentary that you can think of that has no uh, that has no narrator. Um, I just finished watching Ken Burns' documentary on the Dust Bowl, and even though it it does have the uh, the uh, Ken Burns' usual overarching narrator. And even though it does have uh, Ken Burns' usual selection of uh, historians also talking about the event, uh, what it also has are a bunch of 80 and 90 year olds, uh, many of whom I doubt have ever been interviewed very extensively about their experiences in, in the Great Depression and then in the Dust Bowl uh, of the 1930s. And what you have is them telling their own life stories or telling the stories of a specific day 
that a dust storm blew through their area of Oklahoma, whatever it was. And you just can't beat it. Uh, one of them was just about how uh, an old woman is telling the story of when it rained one day and they hadn't had rain in months, uh, probably longer than months, and all the kids went outside to play in the rain and they just let the rain fall over, all over their bodies. And when their parents called them in for dinner, none of the kids would come inside because they just wanted to be out in the rain. And so uh, what the mothers did was uh, bring their supper out to them uh, on the porch or something like that. Um, and it's just beautiful how she told the story. And, uh, and you don't need a novel around that. You don't need uh, someone sitting back and turning it into uh, a piece of prose that uh, a bunch of kids in a college class will then overanalyze. Uh, it's something that you listen to. It's something that you experience. Uh, Netflix has really done this for me um, with many of their documentaries. I've really been on the lookout over the last few years that this thought has been in my mind for uh, for people who are being interviewed, and usually true crime stuff, um, people who are being interviewed who will never write a book, who will never write an essay, who will never, uh, who will never write a poem, um, who will never be called on to contribute to, you know, an oral history of such and such uh, small town or something like that. Uh, people who otherwise would never have even been listened to, and suddenly the camera is on them and the microphone is on them. And, uh, and it's just their voice, and it is the natural way of speaking. And, uh, of course, it's not completely natural, and that's always the play of it. Uh, they know the cameras are there, and they know uh, they have their own biases and the rest of it. But, but even then, the eloquence comes through. Um, I'm struck by that constantly, and it makes me doubt uh, more frequently than I might want to admit. The reason for, uh, the reason that I want to write poetry at all. Why bother if what you could do instead is what Studs Terkel did, which was uh, spend, what, 50, 60 years of your life going off and interviewing people with a huge tape recorder about life in America in the last 50 years, uh, living on a certain street, living in a certain city, uh, living through the 80s, uh, my favorite of his, simply called working, talking to people about their jobs. Um, what, what else is there, really? And that might also be the reason why I have tried to uh, believe that poetry can be popular again, uh, in, a, in a real way, not, uh, not in not popular merely among other poets, or not popular merely in the sloppy way of uh, other things that go on. Um, because poetry can, poetry can really, at its best, I suppose, mirror the natural rhythms of speech if you let it. Uh, uh, this is just something that struck me today as worth uh, coming down here to talk about.
and uh, I'm sure I will wish that I had said a million other things once I press stop on this, but um, maybe this even proves the point. I came down here having only the barest sense of what the hell I was going to try to say, and all of this uh, came out. But um, yes, I guess I'll just uh, leave it at that for tonight. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.